Okay, so welcome everyone to this Ask Me Anything session with Jason and myself, Mekla. So um, the way that this is going to work is this is basically an open session where everybody can ask any questions that you might have related to Amazon FBA, um, e-commerce, selling on you know, Amazon US, Singapore, and uh, also sourcing, whether it's from China or India. And um, if you do have any questions, there are a couple of ways that you can ask your questions. So first of all, you can either chat and type them in the chat box, and I'll be keeping an eye on the chat box and I'll be reading out the questions. Or you could also raise your hand. So if you see there's at the bottom of your screen under reactions, most probably there should be a raise hand option. So you can use that. And uh, then I will call you to unmute and then ask your question. So um, just try to avoid, you know, unmuting yourself because there's so many people on the call. If everybody unmutes, you know, or if more people unmute at the same time, then it becomes a bit difficult to manage. So we have about one hour. Um, so we will try to keep uh, the answers short and we'll try to address as many questions as we can. And um, if we're not able to address your question, then maybe we can try to uh, do it at a later stage, maybe via email or in the Telegram group that we have for Asian Seller um, or Jason's groups. And uh, we are planning to do these sessions on a monthly basis. So this is the first session and hopefully Jason and I will be able to figure out a way to do this every month. But we do want to bring the community together and you know address any questions that people might have because Jason gets so many requests separately for you know people uh, people asking him questions I get requests as well so we thought why don't we just do one session every month where we can get everybody together and um, you know that will help you guys move forward in case you're stuck with something and then we can also talk about our services like Jason has a training I have some services related to sourcing so in case we can help you with that we'll do that as well. Um, I also have Margaret uh, joining in from Australia. She's the co-founder of India Sourcing Network with me. So um, she's also available to answer any questions. So before we begin, let's just do quick introductions. Um, of course, everybody knows Jason, <laughs> but just in case some people here have been living under a rock, Jason, can you do a quick introduction? <laughs> Hi everyone. Uh, yeah, so I've been selling on Amazon since like 2013 and uh, long story short i started with a really really small budget uh initial private label i spent 80 dollars uh <laughs> and uh just uh, been disciplined about scaling that slowly but uh, steadily and uh yeah so right now i have a i guess a fairly uh, a mid-sized business i guess uh, seven figures um and uh, along the way, I've gotten a lot of questions from people. I started a blog about it. I used to be a history teacher, so I thought I'd chronicle what I was doing. And from the, the blog, uh, I started to meet people uh, like Felix, like Ben here, Mabel. I see a few others like Vanessa. Um, and people asked me for training, so I started a training course. And some of the people here, I guess, have attended that. Um, and yeah, that's me in a nutshell. You can find out more about what I do by going to my blog or website, and that's Jason Tay online. Uh, Maglas just put that in the chat. Yep. So uh, there's also links there where you can contact me, send me a private message, etc. All right, but yeah, I, I think more than well, the majority of you all know me, so yeah, <laughs> uh, we can chat more as um, this session progresses. 
Exactly. So real quick introduction about myself as well. So my background is mostly in the sourcing industry. And I've been working in sourcing for 20 plus years. I lived in, uh, worked in China for 10 years, Philippines, India. And for the last uh, three years or so, I've been helping Amazon e-commerce sellers source products from India. And that's what I really uh, specialize in nowadays together with my partner, Marco Jolly and Kevin, who's not here currently. So yeah, so I can answer any of your sourcing related questions specifically about India, but also China. Uh, yeah. Okay, so let's get started now. Um, who is going to go with the first question? Okay, we've got one question from Ben. My out of stock, and I'm going to read out the questions, and this is for the benefit of people who are watching the replay because they're not going to be able to see the chat. So Ben is asking, my out of stock item sales is very slow after it was replenished. Is this normal? Okay, uh, I'm going to get... Uh, it would be nice for other people, everyone to participate as well. Like some of you here are, fair, are quite experienced, you know, like Mark, for example, is super experienced. Uh, Felix as well. Felix uh, attended my first or second batch of training uh, three, some years ago, maybe. Yeah. And he's doing very well. He's doing it full time as well. He quit his job as an engineer, I believe. Uh, so he has a lot of good insight as well. Hmm. Are you still an Amazon seller ambassador, Felix? Sorry. Uh, yes, still am. Ah, yeah. So he's one of Amazon's official ambassadors. I sort of recommended him to Amazon when they asked me. Uh, but okay, let's talk about Ben's question. So my out-of-stock item sales is very slow after it was replenished. So your, your product was doing uh, quite well, and then it, it was out of stock for a while, and then you restocked it after a gap of being out of stock and now it's not selling as much. Is that right, Ben? Oh, uh, yeah. Yes. Okay. Um, anybody want to jump in with ideas? Oh. Anybody faced Why a similar think? situation? Yeah. No. <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, um, without knowing the exact context, I can think of a few reasons. One, uh, is it seasonal? Uh, number two, did more competitors jump in uh, the time that you were out of stock? I know it's it's commonly said among uh, Amazon sellers that you know to keep in stock because when you run out of stock, uh, it's said that the system will penalize you. Personally, I don't think it's the system like actually uh, actively trying to penalize you. It's just that when you run out of stock, you lose traction in terms of um, sales velocity, which is one of the ranking factors. So it's more like an indirect penalization. Uh, and what happens when you're out of stock is other people who are optimized for the keywords that are driving your traffic or impressions uh, then start to gain sales velocity traction. And therefore, when you come back into stock, uh, it, uh, you appear further down in the search results. So that's, that might be something that's happening. Uh, so to solve, if that is the issue then, in order to try to recover your sales, what you want to do is uh, widen and push your sales funnel. And um, one of the ways to do that would be 
uh, running PPC ads, targeting uh, a having a white funnel kind of keyword and product targeting approach to recover those sales. Uh, for me, I generally don't face this issue. And the reason is because my strategy is essentially to go after very low competition products. So my product, let's say, is uh, selling, um, let's say, 500 units a month, for example. Uh, and then I run out of stock for, let's say, one or one month. Uh, when I come back into stock, sure, my bestseller rank might drop from, like, let's say, in the thousands to, let's say, 200,000. That's happened to me. Uh, but typically within one or two weeks, I'm back at my usual sales velocity. And the reason is because there is low competition. So uh, the, the search results rankings are not going to go to anyone. Not bestseller rankings. I don't really care about bestseller ranking. But the search results uh, ranking, that's where you show up for search results for various keywords. Uh, I'm able to recover those very quickly. And the other thing that helps me recover quickly is also because I'm targeting lots of different uh, keyword phrases. For example, one of my top selling products, um, the last time I checked uh, for my ads, I was targeting 2,500 some different keywords for one listing. Yep. I hope that answers the question. Okay. Anyone else? Anyone else want to add to that? Okay, uh, let's move on to the next one then. Mabel is saying, is it advisable to order large quantities and send to 3PL or smaller quantities and ship direct to Amazon? Okay, I'll just jump in and answer this. <laughs> uh, I think it's uh, really um, good question, especially with uh, shipping and logistics uh, issues that we've uh, been facing since COVID-19 hit the world. Mm, uh, I think it really depends on what you're trying to achieve and which stage of uh, the product kind of sales cycle you are at. So for example, for most of my listings, uh, I, I know the sales uh, history. I know I have a good estimate of how many sales I have per month. And so when I order, I want to balance uh, not spending too much that it uh, is a risk to my cash flow. But at the same time, I want to order enough in terms of volume to have good marginal utility. So to minim uh, make my shipping costs uh, worthwhile, right? Uh, and so if I want to do that tip, uh, the other consideration for me is to keep in stock. Uh, last December, I had my lowest sales ever <laughs> for the last few years. It was a terrible December. Uh, it was less than six figures in sales for the month. So that's actually really terrible for me. Uh, uh, it was the worst month in the last 12 months. But anyway, uh, when it should be the best. And the reason for that was because... Uh, Usually, I have a uh, I restock. I order to restock my uh, Q4 sales in August, and by September it ships out. Uh, then in October it lands in the US. Uh, what happened last year was I did my usual. I ordered in August. My stock shipped out in September, but they only arrived in the US and got checked into Amazon in January. <laughs> Uh, because yeah, various like uh, like port problems and all that. Uh, so for this year, I actually have a strategic account manager with Amazon. 
whose job is to like bug me to uh, do stuff. <laughs> uh, and uh, so she said, so how are you going to increase your thing by like 50% this year, <laughs> your sales? I said, well, if I just managed to keep in stock, I probably increase my sales by maybe 100%. Uh, and so what I plan to do this year is um, I'm going to ship in larger quantities to a 3PL in the States uh, and hold a larger quantity of reserve stock so that I can drip feed to Amazon. This is to make sure that any international shipments uh, are not affected by unforeseen delays. All right. And I think I totally agree with Jason in terms of a sh uh, the perspective of shipping. You want to ship larger quantities because uh, if you ship very small quantities from China or India to the U.S., then there are a lot of fixed costs that you have to incur for every shipment. And so if you're shipping, let's say 200 pieces versus a thousand pieces, you know, the per unit uh, cost of shipping will be very high because the fixed costs uh, will not get distributed. Um, you know, I mean, they get distributed across your uh, number of the, the number of units that you're shipping. So it's, if it's a smaller quantity, then the per unit cost will be higher. So, if possible, if you know that you're going to, uh, if the product is going to do well, it's better, I feel, to ship to a 3PL uh, and, and ship in larger quantities from, from your supplier. Okay, Kenneth, I want to ask, what should be the percentage set aside for the first six months and subsequent months for PPC ads? My industry is travel mug. <laughs> How long is a piece of string, I think? <laughs> Jason, what do you say? <laughs> Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, I actually go through this when I coach uh, people. Um, but I, I use a reverse calculation thing, which is, okay, I'm going to try to explain it really quick in one minute. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, working backwards, what I generally tell people is, if you can have, so PPC ads are based on, you run the ad so that you can get impressions. And then from the impressions, you want to get a certain percentage of click-throughs. And then from the click-throughs, you want to get a certain percentage of conversions or sales. So typically, I just benchmark uh, your conversion rate should be at least 10%. Okay. Um, so you want to try to aim for a 10% conversion rate. Uh, for me, that's like minimum. Um, so if you have a 10% conversion rate, that means for every 10 people who click, which means you pay for the ad 10 times, uh, you get one sale. Uh, so that becomes the starting point for working backwards. So if you are bidding at, uh, let's, say, uh, let's say your cost per click, because you might bid like a dollar 10 cents, but your cost per click might end up a dollar. But let's say you have an actual cost per click average of $1 per click, and you have a 10% conversion rate, uh, just as a benchmark. Uh, that means you will be spending $10 in order to generate one sale. Uh, for easy calculation, let's say your product uh, sells for $100. So if you get one sale from the 10 clicks and it costs you 10, so that costs you $10, uh, then your advertising cost of sales or A cost becomes $10 upon the $100 sale, right? So it's 10%. Uh, uh, so for me, I don't, uh, okay, this is getting a bit complicated and <laughs> I'm confusing myself. Uh, what percentage? So I would say 
Okay, forget what I just shared. Yeah, let me just simplify this uh, for Kenneth. Um, first of all, you need to know your profit margin percentage. All right, so if you know, let's say that after all your production costs, your shipping costs and your Amazon fees, you have a 30% uh, profit margin. Then I would say for the initial launch phase, for me, I would budget that 30% of my selling price uh, would be my advertising cost of sales. Because I always try to target an A cost that is equivalent equal to or less than my profit margin that way i know that my advertising is essentially free or making money does that make sense for everyone uh so once you have you have this percentage and then uh what i shared earlier now we call it uh the working backwards thing if you can if you put two and two together um and do the calculations you will actually be able to come up with a, like a formula, like you will know like, okay, this is how much I can expect to send, spend. If this is my target A cost, and this is the amount, uh, uh, if I can get hit this 10% conversion rate. But the only thing you won't be able to estimate for a start is what you need to bid. Because until you create a listing and then start running the, PPC, it's hard to really know what your actual real-world cost per click is going to end up being. And the cost per click is going to be very important as a base, a number, a basis to calculate like your A cost and then your 10% conversion rate. Uh, but yeah, in a nutshell, that's how it works. Uh, essentially, it makes a lot more sense if you actually have started running ads for let's say one or two weeks and then you can use the actual data set and it makes much more uh, You'll be able to get it like when it, yeah, it's easier to explain then. Anybody so, else want to add to yeah. that? That's anybody else? Convoluted. <laughs> Felix, what about you? I mean, you're, what kind of percentages are you seeing for your PPC ads? Yeah, so for me, I don't really think in terms of percentages. So what I like to do is when I'm doing costing for my products, uh, I like to simulate a scenario where, you know, I would probably say I'm selling uh, five units a day, for example. And then in my entire costing sheet, I would budget uh, amount spent per day on PPC. And then from there, I work out the profitability. So then my PPC budget would vary from product to product. So for products with uh, lower margins, I would allocate less budget for those. Yeah, so that's how I look at it. So for my products, the amount of PPC spend can vary from, you know, a dollar a day to like, you know, a, a few hundred a day. So it really depends on the product and then what the profit margins I get. Yeah, so I, I don't really set a fixed percentage. Yeah, that's a great answer from Felix actually. Uh, it really does vary from product to product. I have products where I spend like really just a few dollars and I have products where I spend $500. It could be a day, I don't know. Uh, but uh, if it justifies, like I often have uh, related to PPC, um, I often get people ask the question, so once my product is doing really well, can I stop PPC? Like why would you stop it? 
if the BBC is driving, if the ads are driving sales, I always say, do you see McDonald's stop advertising? No, because the ads are actually uh, doing really well for them. But the other thing that Felix mentioned, I think makes a lot of sense. Um, if you can do an estimate of how many units you're going to sell, and then you know your profit margin, then you can work out, okay, uh, what uh, if, if I'm aiming, like, let's say my product sells for $50 each, I'm um, doing a 30% kind of thing then I know immediately uh, what kind of budget per day I can allocate for PPC. Um, yeah. Okay, and shameless plug here. <laughs> we have got a PPC workshop in case anyone's interested. So Ritu Java had done this workshop and the recordings are available at this link. I've just posted it in the chat. Okay, so let's see. Mabel, next question. For prime exclusive discount, is FBA fees based on original price or discounted price? And second question is, what is the difference between prime exclusive discount, at least 10% and coupon plus 60 cents? Okay, anybody wants to chime oh, it's, in? It's all you, Jason. <laughs> okay. Uh, FBA fees based on the discounted price. Because uh, FBA fee is a percentage of the selling price. Okay, uh, what's the difference between prime exclusive discount and coupon? Um, for the coupon, the $60, 60 cents, sorry, is a flat rate, rate uh, fee that you pay every time the coupon is used. So if 10 people apply your coupon to their purchase, then you pay 60 cents times 10, $6. Whereas for, uh, and the 60 cents is not the discounted amount, it's, it's on top of the discounted amount. So if you do a 10% off coupon, the customer will get 10% off the price. And then you, so you get 10% less. And then you also have to pay Amazon 60 cents uh, as an admin fee for the using of the coupon. Uh, whereas if you do a prime exclusive discount, the customer gets 10% off and there's no additional admin fee for you to pay. Mabel, does that answer your question? Questions? Uh, yes, thank you. Yeah. Okay, Vanessa, does anyone notice there are Chinese manufacturers selling directly on Amazon US? Uh, <laughs> yes, <laughs> Vanessa, there are tons and tons. I don't know, like 50% of sellers on Amazon US are from China and a lot of them are manufacturers. So yeah. yes, unfortunately uh, that does happen. Am Amazon uh, actually has a uh, team like their own office in China, whose job is to recruit and train sellers to sell directly onto Amazon. So yes, you will have a lot of uh, China sellers selling on Amazon. Yeah, so there are two things. There's China sellers, like, you know, entrepreneurs like us, and then there are mm, manufacturers. manufacturers yeah. yeah, so factories are also selling on Amazon directly because they see it as a huge market. And they are uh, there are um, agencies in China that actually help these manufacturers set up a uh, shop on Amazon. And in fact, in India too, we, we're seeing that Amazon themselves are encouraging manufacturers to sell directly on Amazon. Uh, when we were at this trade show in Delhi a couple of years ago, there were representatives from Amazon going around the booths and they were asking manufacturers, the factories to set up shop on Amazon. 
But we find that many of the manufacturers in India, unless they have their own brand and they're already selling their own brand, they prefer not to sell on Amazon or any you know uh, retail um, channel as such. They prefer doing wholesale orders. Um, but I think increasingly you will see like D2C, direct to consumer. This is becoming very trendy, you know, in China, of course, and in India too. So this is something that uh, increasingly sellers will have to uh, contend with for sure. Okay, Amber. So I guess I guess yeah. the answer to the question was more like how to prevent this, how to prevent a competition and price war is uh, Jason's earlier uh, answer, choose lower competition and white sales funnel, right? Yeah, so uh, one of the things is when you actually think of, for me, how I think about it is I try to create brands uh, that allow me to build a moat. Uh, at the moment, uh, like I, I, number one, I don't like to compete on price because uh, you will lose. Uh, number two, uh, at the moment, we can still beat most China manufacturers in terms of copywriting. Uh, I always tell people, uh, people always, well, Amazon officially says that A plus content, for example, uh, causes a 5% average increase in sale uh, conversions or increase the sales by 5%. Uh, like on a couple of my listings, I actually, once I implemented my A plus content, I actually saw 50% increase in sales. And I think the discrepancy between Amazon's average of 5% improvement versus what I saw on my own or see in my own account, it's because uh, there is A plus content that is good and there's A plus content that is pointless. I see a lot of pointless uh, A plus content and I know immediately it's from a typical like, China-based seller. Uh, seller. Uh, it's not even pointless. I think the A plus content actually has a negative effect because it's written so badly that it, as a, if I was a customer, I'd actually be turned off and not want to buy the product because it sounds so like dodgy. So, uh, um, so we can differentiate by uh, branding it uh, better, um, providing a better value proposition and quality proposition. Yeah. Thank you. Um, Mohammed. Did you have a question? I do, yeah, actually. Uh, so I just raised my hand to yeah. ask a question. Yeah. That's okay. Yeah, yeah, Instead go ahead. Of, um, chipping on chatting. Yeah, go ahead. So uh, Jason, so um, I've been selling in Amazon for um, two years and I have several products. But well, so some of products are um, as a success and some of it uh, is a failure. Um, but there's also one of my product that decreasing in, in profit margin, saying lower than, you know, uh, 10%. So in this point, I was thinking about, should, should I uh, continue um, doing this particular product or should I, you know, focus on looking for another, so probably, you know, um, successful yeah yeah that's uh, that's what i thought um because maybe if i if i keep buying this stuff from china right and then the if the the shipping cost is you know increasing again then the profit margin will be you know lower yeah. then i'm probably losing money instead of making money so sure. so what do you think about this one particular product <clears throat> okay my thoughts are if you can uh, 
restore uh, the profit margin, you can increase the profit margin again, uh, either by negotiating a lower price or upping your selling price, then sure, it might be salvageable. But if you've explored and thought through like everything that you can do and uh, in your opinion, the margin will just keep shrinking, then I would say uh, cull the product, like move on from it. Um, personally for me, uh, well, I always tell people to make sure you have sufficient profit margin from the start because uh, you want to be able to buffer not only for ad, PPC ads, you want to buffer for increased market competition, you buffer for unforeseen costs like, uh, like the shipping costs, which have increased by a significant amount in the last couple of years. You might want to uh, need to buffer for what if you, you need to uh, store in a 3PL and that's going to add some costs to your whole logistics. Um, so make sure that you have a very, very a products with very good margins to start with. Uh, otherwise, it's just going to be very hard to work with. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's... Well, the, the trend of this niche is actually going down where more competitors, you know, um, going down on their prices. So then I, I just keep also, you know, reducing my price. Sure. If you're just a yeah. doesn't yeah. looks nice, right? Yeah. Uh, if you're just a me too product and uh, you just uh, if it's a me too product and it there's no other way to yeah. compete, yeah, then I would say, yeah, start uh looking to diversify your products with something. Okay. Well, yeah, other things. Thanks, Jason. Welcome. Okay, question from Amber. I have a question on pricing strategy. If I think my best selling price is $39.99. And I know that Amazon doesn't like sellers to raise prices. Is it advisable to launch at a much higher price, say 45 or 49 as a selling price? And I can play around with the buffer and enjoy more profit if my product does well and shows demand. Okay, I'm trying to digest the question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's not that Amazon doesn't like you to raise your prices. I've raised prices on some of my products, like from $19.99 to let's say $23.99, and then I have more sales. Uh, so uh, it's not that the algorithm is out there looking to catch people who raise prices and then like uh, give you a demerit um, or penalize you. It's... Okay, maybe I'll... Well, my general advice would be I would uh, on Amazon you can set various price points. Uh, number one, I always tell people as a rule of thumb, best practice number one, always set a manufacturer's recommended retail price. Uh, that's an optional thing, so a lot of sellers miss out. So let's say you actually want to end up selling at thirty nine ninety nine, I would set an MSRP of, for example, forty nine dollars. And then I might do a, and then Amazon has the selling price, which is your normal selling price. And that's, uh, you have to fill that in. That would be the default price. So I might then put something like uh, $45 or whatever. And then I would probably put a sale price of 39.99. Or uh, I would, MSRP still remains 49. Maybe I put a selling price of let's say 47. Uh, then maybe I put, a uh, coupon uh, 
that is $7 off, something like that to get it down to uh, 39.99. So for me, I always prefer to either do a prime exclusive discount or a coupon uh, to bring the price down to the selling price that I want to sell at. And the reason for that, uh, rather than just set that as the selling price, because the bright green uh, coupon tag or the red prime exclusive discount tag, uh, psychologically, number one, visually, it is pretty eye-catching. Uh, number two, psychologically, it does uh, um, put, it's a bit of a push factor for people to want to click and want to buy, right? Because they don't want, they have uh, fear of missing out on uh, what's probably what in most people's minds would be a temporary uh, discount. So I hope that makes sense. Yep, yep, thanks. Yep, and then you can always play with the discount. Like this month you give a $2 discount, next month you give a $4 discount or whatever. And then, mm -hmm. then your selling price always still uh, remains constant. Oh, here's another uh, benefit of doing that. So when you hit things like Prime Day, right? Uh, when Amazon has Prime Day, you want to run a Prime exclusive discount in order to be featured in their what Amazon calls their merchandising, their push marketing, like email marketing and all that, appear on the deals page, for example. They require you to have at least a 20% uh, discount of the lowest. Uh, it must be at least 20% lower than the lowest selling price that you've set in the last, I think it's 90 days or something. Uh, so if you actually run a coupon, that's not, uh, if you give like $10 off coupon, right? Uh, then the 20% is actually off the actual original selling price, not off the coupon discounted price. So if you actually lowered your price or you ran a sale and you give 10% off now, uh, let's say in June, and then July, you want to run 20% of that, 30% off of Prime Day exclusive discount, uh, Prime Day discount, then you would have to do like the 20% plus lower off the 10% that you had discounted like 30 days ago. And then your margin would then become like wiped out further. So uh, that's one advantage of doing a coupon, especially in the, uh, every year they change the number, but sometimes it's uh, low off the, must be at least 20% of the price, selling price in the last 30 days or 60 days or 90 days. Yeah. Hey, question from Charmaine. Should I send my existing private label products from Singapore without doing product research to test them out? However, the freight costs are very high and I'm making a loss if I sell them at the target selling price. If I mark them up to cover the cost, I will make them not competitive. Um, if that, for me, if that was the situation, then I would not uh, move forward with the product. Uh, I've had uh, companies that approached me before I had this, uh, yeah, a few oh, with that situation where their products uh, that were just not price competitive. Okay, there was this guy who wanted to do yoga mats. Uh, the cost of his yoga mat was like almost $20. <laughs> and then when you go onto Amazon, the price of yoga mats is like $20. Uh, so it's, it just didn't make any sense. Because there's no way, uh, if he marked it up to a price where he was profitable, number one, nobody would buy his mats. Uh, but if he lowered his price to be competitive, then every sale would be a loss. So what's the point of that? That's even worse than not selling, right? Uh, yeah. 
So it's very important that you need to be profitable at a realistic market price or a competitive market price. Okay. Um, Cynthia, what's the strategy to apply at launch when product becomes oversaturated by China sellers during the delay in production and shipment? <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> That's a tough one. <laughs> Uh, what's the strategy? Well, first, I would say darn. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, it's happened to me probably a couple of times. Uh, um, so what I would do is I would, I would itch my price down to the point where it's competitive, but yet I can still eke out some profit or worst case scenario, at least break even and try to clear the stock out and then like uh, move on from the product. Uh, it's happened to me once or twice before where I had done that, uh, lowered the price to the to break even point uh, and it still wasn't competitive or still wasn't selling. And once it hits that threshold, right, uh, I then did a disposal order because it makes no sense. If I lower my price, let's say uh, a little more, uh, then let's say for example, I'm going to be making, after Amazon fees, I'll make $5 loss per sale. So what is the point of making the sale? <laughs> I might as well just pay Amazon like a dollar or whatever to get rid of the stock. Has anybody else encountered this kind of situation? Felix is nodding his head, yes. <laughs> So what did you do, Felix? <laughs> Pretty much similar to what you do. But I guess it, it's, it happens more for me to products, but mm. for products that brings value to customers, I think it's a bit more robust in that sense because you're confident with your products and you know that you're offering value that you know, the other sellers cannot provide. So that gives a bit of you know, uh, defense. Mm. Okay, Mabel, how should I handle voice of customer cancelled order returns? Oh, so. okay. <laughs> you all know what a voice of the customer is? Just nod or shake. Okay, I see Shamin shaking. Uh, uh, so it's a link to return. So when customers return a product, then Amazon like I buy stuff off Amazon and I've returned them. Uh, so when you return a product, then you put like, they ask you to fill up the, re take the reason. And so what happens is if you cross a certain return rate, like X percent, uh, and then there's a, uh, then the voice of the customer is where then Amazon tells you, or oh, this is the reason, these are the reasons that customers selected for returning the product. Uh, when you cross a certain threshold, Amazon will suspend the listing and say the return rate is too high. There's too many people unhappy with this product. So we are suspending your product listing until you give us like a plan of action. All right, what are you going to do about it? Uh, so how do you handle it? <laughs> Number one, uh, typically seller support uh, will not listen to your reasons. If you say like, oh no, why was the customer's fault? <laughs> the 
the product really was six by six inches. Uh, it's just the customer didn't beat and expected it to be 10 by 10. Uh, uh, and that's just too bad for you, okay? Sales support doesn't really care. Uh, so what I do is I try to make, uh, I look at the issues that customers are raising. If I can figure out like, okay, what, what are the common reasons why they're getting, why it's being returned? If the reason is legitimate, then yes, I have a product problem that I need to acknowledge. If the issue is not legitimate, it's a customer, uh, it's customer's fault. Uh, like the example I said, it's just um, not reading, let's say this information about a product. Then I try to make the information clearer. Make sure it's in a bullet point, make sure it's in an image infographic, make sure it's in the description or something like that. Uh, so that it's not misunderstood. Um, that will minimize the issues. Mm, yeah, essentially that's what I do. Anybody else? What do you do if you get a very high return rate uh, to the point where the listing is in danger of being suspended? Marg, do you want to add something to that? Yeah, look, it's very difficult. It depends on the product and it depends on the people because you find some people just, like I've got a pro product that people kept sending back saying it's smaller than I expected and I have got dimensions. I've got, like, everything. I've even got my headline says the dimensions in the, in the actual title. It's in my first bullet and I've even gone against tops and in capital letters across the bottom of my first bullet I've got please check the dimensions etc prior to make you know sure that this suits your you know expectations and all this and they still come back and say oh it's a lot smaller than I thought but I mean I've even tried with I've got you know images of it against something that you know how high it is like it's quite obvious you know and it says it is 16 inches high what do they think it's going to be 30 inches high like it's in your headline i i'm beyond i don't know sometimes you just can't do yeah. anything about it and you just have to live with it and i think you know you either get uh people who just make up an excuse to obviously have not to pay any yeah. return shipping and then you get other people who i don't know just don't read anything i mean if i go to buy something online i always you know i think oh is my shoe size exactly right have i got that right or how yeah. big is that yeah. do a bit of extra but i don't know what it is with us buyers because in australia most people i know might have two problems in a product in a year in australia and 2000 in america it's just the the people are so different i don't know what it is i mean we sold on amazon australia and catch Australia for nearly four years and I think I had two returns in the whole time I mean you get two a day in Amazon at the US I mean it's just I think Amazon have made it too easy for people to return it. and I think that's the biggest problem because there's no penalty if you rip the box up and throw it in the bin and send it back bit by bit or you don't send it back or you send half it back there's no penalty for you um, and I think that's the biggest problem so I don't think there's much you can do personally about it unless you have an issue. But if you, you know, if you know that there's nothing wrong, if you've got your dimensions, you've got the size, you've got as much information. And as, as Jason said, everywhere. Um, I mean, I've got it everywhere I can possibly think. And I've got lots of images of lifestyle things where it's my product is shown in every room of the house. You know, it's quite obvious mm -hmm. how big it is, um, but you can't change it. So, yep. yeah, so I think it's live with it. Yep. So yeah. we do our best to minimise but we yep. can never uh, completely eliminate unreasonable customers. <laughs>
<laughs> okay, so real quick, Jason, canceled orders, returns. I mean, customers have a right to cancel or return, can't do anything. There's nothing that we can do about it. There's nothing Amazon can do about it. So, yeah. I mean, for returns, I guess, Mabel, is your question, like, what do you, how do you handle returns? Do you get them shipped back to you? Do you get Amazon to destroy uh, them? Like, what is your question exactly about returns, Mabel? Do you want to just... Um, um, yeah. Okay, regarding returns, uh, I've had customers who return, but then uh, when it is uh, sent out again, I think it, it, uh, it came back again. So I think the item itself has been damaged, but it is classified as sellable by... Oh, Amazon. right. Amazon is resending your returns. Um, I've had one product that was ex, uh, especially susceptible to that issue. Uh, it was a party decor item, or it can be used as party decor. And then uh, I suspected what happened was people would buy it from Amazon, uh, use it for their party and then return it as a free rental <laughs> and i had a lot of issues with unhappy customers and negative reviews because people say they were getting like used stuff that had food stains stunk off like uh cigarettes or whatever uh, and so i just stopped selling that product uh even though yeah i was doing like maybe 400 units per month on that particular product i just like oh it was too yeah, too, too high a cancellation and return rate and uh, getting the returns mixed up and resent uh, sold as new again by FBA. So you know what? just forget it. I don't want to deal with this product. Uh, that's, uh, I guess I had the luxury of like uh, cutting a product like that because I have multiple products. So like knocking off one product's not, it's like half whatever, save me some frustration. It's all right. Okay, Charmaine, do you sell different categories of products under different brands or the same brand? Hmm. Good question. Anybody want to chime in first? Well, can I just say, I believe your brands should be, I suppose, um, all very similar in nature. They can be either in, like you might sell a glass jug, a plastic jug, a metal jug, something like that. So that's a brand. Or you sell something all made out of wood or metal or ceramic or plastic or something, and that's a brand. I don't believe if you're selling a baby, you know, a bib and a car tyre, that's a brand. There's no cohesiveness in that, and it's going to be very difficult to sell. If you want to sell your brand moving forward, which I hope you're all planning to do, I think you need to have a brand that is similar. I mean, I have noticed some of the bigger sellers might have all home decor, but they might have a section that's like, um, you know, kitchenware, and then they might have bathroom wear or something. That's okay, but I think the more cohesive you are and the more that, you know, it's a meaningful brand that people are going to be looking at that to, to, to purchase later on down the track because that's probably where you're going to make your most money is if you can successfully exit your brand, um, there's probably as much money in that as selling for a couple of years on Amazon if you can get your figures right. So I think that just, yeah, don't just sell I, I, what I call just willy-nilly stuff and, and call it a brand because it's really not a brand. I mean, that would be like going and Reebok starting to sell kettles or something, uh, you know. <laughs> It's you know you've got to you've got to keep in that same trap. That's yeah. that's my opinion. Go for it, Joe. Yeah, I think that's really good advice. Uh, uh, two things. Uh, number one, from the uh, if you put yourself in the customer's shoes, 
uh, I think having some kind of cohesiveness makes sense. Uh, so I know a lot of you who attend my training, for example, I use the example of Marks and Spencers as something that is like a catch-all brand, uh, but it's still all sort of like lifestyle products. Uh, mm, so it's imp- I think it yeah definitely like don't do like baby bottles and uh, like automotive accessories. I think that would make no sense at all to be the same brand. Uh, so that's one. As long as uh, there's some sense to it, like it makes sense to uh, brand these uh, under one name. Uh, the other thing to bear in mind, as Mark mentioned, I think a lot of people don't think about when they start uh, is if when you get to the point where you want to sell off a part, you can sell off a brand. Uh, and there are companies out there who are looking to acquire brands uh, that are sold on Amazon. Uh, so if, let's say, you do sell like baby accessories and also automotive accessories, you might, if you have them as separate brands, it makes it much easier to sell off one of the brands. Um, rather than if it was all under one brand, then like somebody wants to acquire that things makes no sense at all. So there are a couple of questions from new sellers who are asking, what is the selection criteria for winning products? (laughs) So I see that um, Hui Sitang has a question. I'm relatively new to this e-commerce industry and would like to ask, how would you choose your very first product to sell, especially given that e-commerce is quite saturated now? I wouldn't say e-commerce is saturated. It's still growing. And then I think uh, I saw a couple other people ask, Charmaine is asking, oh no, that's for VAs. Um, Lee Kenneth, if we are new to Amazon, any basic method to estimate the sales as we estimate the amount of stock needed to send to Amazon? So it's kind of related. And then Amita is asking, what are the criteria for winning products? So do you want to cover that a little bit, uh, Jason? Like, Well, uh, my simple kind of explanation for that is I, I use an acronym, PVC. Uh, also known as polyvinyl chloride. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh, for, uh, for me, uh, products have to um, match three criteria. So P stands for it has to be the right price and has to have the right profit margin. Uh, so for me, a, a base minimum uh, would be 30% net profit margin. Of course, the higher, the better. But yeah, if it was something like earlier uh, Sastro mentioned like his price like 10% then for me that's a total no-go because there's no room for ads there's no room for shipping price increases etc um, so that's P uh, price and profit margin uh, number two is velocity so velocity is sales volume over time typically uh, I would measure let's say estimated sales per month uh, and so I want to do some projections uh, for what I expect to sell, uh, especially for a new launch. Like when it starts off, there's zero social proof. I'm pretty conservative. So then I'll have a conservative estimate of, okay, how many can I expect to sell? Uh, So that's V. And then C is competition. For me, competition is the big one. Competition is uh, the, the criteria that requires the most analysis. So I actually have a spreadsheet where I have I think something like 10 or so uh, 
filters that I use. I know people like Vanessa and all that have used the spreadsheet, right? Uh, where you do the keyword research. Number one, you find as many keywords as you can that are relevant to the product you intend to sell. You list down all these keywords and then you search each keyword one by one on Amazon. And then you compile all the info that uh, is there on the search results page. Uh, and there are like maybe 10 or so data points that I would record. Mm. And then I have a traffic light system. So the spreadsheet auto colors. And essentially, uh, once you do that, you'll be able to see, is this a green product, which means it's a goal in terms of competition? Or is it like, wow, like 80% of the criteria, all the spreadsheet, the cells in the spreadsheet turn out red. Uh, so then, wow, that's a really competitive product. Uh, if I was product agnostic, meaning I don't have a product that I need to sell, I can sell anything as long as it uh, is profitable, has sufficient velocity, and it's low competition, then in that case, I would select the products that meet the P, the V, and the C. However, if you already are a brand owner and you want to sell the, the existing product that you have, then the same thing, I would do the PVC analysis and then try to find if there are any areas that in a sense you can exploit or there are any market opportunities. In certain cases, for some products, like uh, I've, worked with, uh, I've, I've talked to some companies, uh, they wanted to engage me as their, uh, on a retainer for Amazon. Uh, and essentially, after I do analysis of their product, I said, well, even if you pay me $20,000 upfront, I won't do your thing because I don't think your product can work on Amazon. It just won't work, in my opinion. Uh, because number one, your cost price is already above the market price in the US, so it's not going to work. Or uh, some other reasons, like uh, I had one company, they were doing Bluetooth speakers, uh, cost price too high, uh, does sound and brand, no brand name, so you're not going to be able to compete against Bose and JPL and all that, so it's like completely pointless. Yep. And they had no, no uh, budget to compete against the big boys in the product type that they were trying to uh, that they wanted to sell. Okay. Right. So I think um, uh, if you're new, you should definitely consider doing Jason's course. It's a two-day course and um, Jason does it every couple of, oh, three days. Yeah, I oh, do it three half days now. Oh, three half days. Okay, it's, uh, cool. Easier to digest. <laughs> yeah. So it's online now. Previously, it used to be in person in Singapore. Um, so it's online. And what are the next uh, days Jason, yeah. Uh, so my next run is uh, from the 16th to the 18th of March. It's from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. Uh, each day for three days. Uh, so that's just a group portion. So that's half the training. Uh, the other half of the training is you take whatever you learn in the three days, you go execute, and then you start scheduling your one-to-one -one consultation. So that's the one-to-one -one consultations are included in the training like package. Uh, so typically you take what you've learned from the three days, you go uh, research and come back with a short list of potential products that meet the criteria that uh, you learned, that I teach. Uh, and then I go through your product short list and I'll tell you this is a go or a no-go. And typically, even if all your products are no-go, uh, based off your ideas, I'm usually able to go off on a rabbit trail kind of thing and tweak your list and say, hey, you know what? Here are two other ideas that would actually work. 
uh, that have good uh, PVC criteria that meet the PVC criteria. Uh, just yesterday, I was on a call with one of the guys from the, the latest batch. My last batch was November, so quite a while ago. Uh, and he actually came back with a product that is, I was shocked. I never heard of this product. <laughs> I have no idea what it was. I didn't even know such a thing existed. But it's around this size, like the cap of a water bottle. Like it's, this, yeah, it's really small, smaller than the palm of my hand. Uh, and it sells for about $30 on Amazon and there's only one seller at the moment. I, wow. I told him to contact you, Mark, because he wants to make it in India. <laughs> oh, awesome. Yeah. And is there demand for the product? Like there's it's keyword... all over Pinterest and Etsy. Oh, wow. Okay, yep. that sounds exciting. <laughs> Those are the kinds of products you want. <laughs> Okay, so um, yeah, definitely consider Jason's uh, course. I've posted the link in the chat as well. Take a look at it. It will really help you. If you're starting new, there's so much to learn in this Amazon business. It really helps to have a strong foundation and get your uh, basics right. Okay, a couple more questions and then we'll start wrapping up. So Mabel is asking, during listing, I place the product in a relevant category, but after launch, the product has BSR in another category. Why is this so? How to select the best category? <laughs> Margaret, you wanna? I see you smiling. <laughs> yeah, look, sometimes Amazon will obviously think it's more relevant in a different category, but you don't have to just be in one category. I've got quite a few of my products are actually in two categories at the same time. So, and I wouldn't stress too much over what category it is in because if it's selling, it doesn't really matter because people don't really go hunting so much for categories. Like they put in a keyword. So I, I wouldn't really even, in fact, I don't always look to see what category off. I'm still in the same category. I don't <laughs> take that much notice. I don't know about you, Jason, but um, so if, it's, if I'm getting sales, I don't really care. But, yeah, and I mean, you know, I've seen some products that are in three different categories. I mean, you know, you might have something that fits into the bathroom. It might fit into the kitchen. It might fit into the laundry. So yeah. you can be in those different types of categories. So I'd, I wouldn't even worry about it. If you're not selling at all, if it's affecting your sales, um, you can go back in and try and you can change that category and, you know, just reach, reset your listing through the new category. But I wouldn't stress over it. I don't know yep. whether you would even would you change it, Jace? I typically don't even know what categories my products are in. I mean, I select something when I create the listing and then like <laughs> uh, the system like plays smart Alec, right? <laughs> and then it will move you around and like, oh, like, oh, I'm here now. Oh, I didn't even know, like, whatever. Yeah, as long as um, the sales are chugging along, I don't really care. Um, uh, the only time when I would uh, maybe do something about it, my Amazon uh, uh, senior, whatever, account manager person just WhatsApp me and said, hey, Jason, you should change the categories for these three products, <laughs> like, literally. Uh, and... Uh, I do want to change the category for one of my products. And the only reason for that is because uh, right now it's in arts and crafts, but if I can move it into industrial and scientific, the Amazon referral fee is 3% lower. <laughs> so it's 12 instead of 15%. Uh, so then I have a bit more profit margin. Um, so yeah, for me, that would be the main criteria. <laughs> Audio, yeah. Okay, so Price questions from... Question from Craig. 
I'm just starting out and I'm based in Singapore, but I want to incorporate in the US. Do you have any recommendations for a virtual mailbox address platform that also includes a utilities option or would it be better to incorporate in Singapore and would it be better to start with my home address or a virtual mailbox address and utilities option? Do you have any recommendations for a virtual mailbox in Singapore? <laughs> okay, I think it's more uh, important to understand your context. So, uh, Craig, is there a reason why you're considering uh, uh, incorporating in the US? Are you a US citizen, for example? Yeah. Yes, I'm a US citizen. Um, okay. In doing my research, I don't know. It seems that Amazon has changed a lot of things. They now require you to receive a verification code by regular mail and are starting to look at utility bills. So I've been trying to, jumping through hoops, trying to get in on this registering and stuff, but I'm, because I'm not based in the US anymore, it makes it hard to do a utility bill option and also to get stuff verified. So that's why I'm wondering if it's easier to just try to do it in Singapore or still try to do it because also not a lot of places have the utility option. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so like your situation, I think it's unique to, uh, from everyone else here, but just very general, like, cause first of all, I don't think, uh, I think there's both tax as well as, uh, Amazon registration and then like, uh, legal regulatory kind of implications here. Uh, so I'll put out my disclaimer. I'm not giving tax advice. <laughs> no, this isn't about um, taxes. This is yeah, just getting but, started. Sure. Um, I would say it probably would be easier to incorporate in Singapore, uh, for the reasons that you mentioned, um, uh, like in terms of verification and all that. Uh, also, uh, Amazon Singapore, uh, Amazon Global Selling, that's the US office, uh, has a global selling um, branch in Singapore whose job is to help first year sellers get registered on Amazon and get started. Um, so they have a new staff who's just joined recently. <laughs> uh, and so she is probably will she will be more on the ball to personally help new sellers through jumping some of these hoops uh, because it's part of her uh, job performance like KPI <laughs> to do that specifically. Um, so I probably would say it's easier to do it in Singapore. I have helped a couple; they were Americans but living in China. Uh, when they incorporated into the US and then had the same issue like utility bill, mailing address, that kind of thing. Uh, it took them two years to get their account up. Okay, so yeah. <laughs> better to incorporate in Singapore. Be, yeah. Yeah, and especially since I'm trying to do California, there's a whole bunch of other oh, issues. Yeah. yeah, California is like probably one of the worst jurisdictions to deal with. Yeah, I, <laughs> there, I'm jumping through hoops with the... Um, trying to get a fictional name since they require that in there. Yeah. So, all right. So incorporate in Singapore, any, and home address or virtual mailbox would be better. I think both are fine. Um, like Mark probably has uses a company that she uses uh, for her corporate secretary or for like her 
company incorporation. I, I have one that I use, it's called Sleek. Uh, because I'm not in Singapore, I've been out of Singapore for the last two years since COVID started, not been on a plane. Uh, so I, I use the uh, mailbox service for my CorpSec. So all my uh, business mail goes to them, they scan it and it goes into a mailbox that I can check on their own web portal. Yep. So Craig, are you um, EP, PR? Like what's your resident status here? Um, long-term task holder. Okay. I'm, I I'll just, hmm. yeah, I just came, got everything settled last year. So I'm relatively new. Okay. You might want to talk to, um, you know, a, a specialist who deals in foreigners setting up companies in Singapore because mm-hmm. you do need to, I mean, because you are a resident, but I'm not sure if long-term visit pass holders can incorporate a company without I, a director. I, I, will, I will have to ask, but I do have a um, pre-letter of consent from the Ministry of Manpower. So I am able to already work in Singapore. So okay. I have forms already that allow me to work. So it's just a matter yeah. of yeah. sitting down yeah. with um yeah. yeah. Let me, yep. You need to clarify Sorry. whether you you can be the sole director and 100% shareholder of a Singapore incorporated yeah. uh, uh, company. And I like would I would recommend contacting this company here, Paul Paul Hype Page. Um, they have helped me set up the company and do everything for me. And they are they really specialize in helping foreigners setting up companies and also, you know, they can do your resident visas and everything if needed. So a very professional company. I've been working with them for three, four years now. So really good. They're also doing all of my taxes and everything. I would say go with Magdalene's recommendation. Yeah, you can't go wrong with them really. Yeah, and I just wonder if you need to speak to someone because because you're really still a US citizen, where are you going to be paying? Like if you've got a US and a, company uh, a Singapore company but you're actually still a US resident are you still going to pay tax there or are you going to be paying it in Singapore do you know that's a bit of a messy thing too I know it's both I've I've done the research on this Um, they'll require the US will want a payment of taxes so it's but um, it's just I guess it would be a matter of where I'm doing most of my sales on and mm. how I would be taxed on that. Even if I'm in Singapore, if most of my sales are going to the US, there may be a way of avoiding the Singapore taxes because I'm not selling in Singapore. I doubt that. If your company I'm, is here, you have to pay taxes here. Yeah, because I'm, I'm, I'm the same. So yeah, we have to pay corporate taxes here if your company is incorporated here, regardless of where you sell. All right, yeah, and so I knew I would have to deal with it. Yeah, because yeah. Right. I live in Australia. Australia and US have a tax treaty, so I don't have to pay tax in the US. I can bring all my profit from the US back and just pay tax here in Australia on that. So yep. I don't, you'd have to look into the Singapore rules, yep. whether they yeah, have a treaty, I don't know whether yeah. they have a treaty, have they? I, I think the issue is the US collects tax from all its citizens, no matter where they are based in the world. <laughs> but, <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's the main thing. Okay, Okay, one last question and then we'll wrap up. So this is from Lilian. Do you start to build a brand only when you have sold a few products or right from the beginning? Currently, when doing product research, I will think of a range of products to sell. From there, 
am I overthinking? There are people who said that Amazon is different from a few years back and one has to build a brand from day one. Appreciate any thoughts. Okay, it really depends on, uh, because there are people who do different types of selling on Amazon, there are people who do reselling. So uh, like let's say, um, like a lot of Americans who are based in America would do something called arbitrage. For example, they walk into Walmart and they find that, hey, uh, Kellogg's cornflakes are like a dollar in Walmart, but selling for $5 per pack uh, on Amazon. So they buy it off Walmart and then they flip it. Uh, so in that case, a brand is irrelevant. Uh, there are people who also sell, uh, well, they purchase wholesale from existing brands. I used to do that a lot. I had 20 wholesale accounts. Uh, so for example, I would buy uh, uh, Captain America toys, Marvel toys, uh, um, from Marvel's distributor and then at the wholesaler price and then I sell it at uh, retail on Amazon. Uh, I've stopped doing that since 2016 because the margins are way too low uh, and also a lot of the, the brand owners have decided to go direct onto Amazon themselves so they stopped supplying to anyone else who sells online. Uh, so if we're talking then about the last um, option now called a uh, private label where we are creating our own brand, I would say uh, for me, I would definitely uh, start with the brand I, I from day one if I'm private labeling. Uh, there are several advantages to that. Uh, number one, uh, once you apply for a uh, to register your trademark with the government authorities, whether that's the USPTO or IPOS in Singapore or the IP office in Australia or wherever. Um, typically, they want to know when was the date of first commercial use. Um, so that's from the day that you listed it on Amazon. If you can take a screenshot of that, that proves date of first commercial use. So all these countries are typically uh, countries that are not North Korea or whatever. <laughs> or China, uh, we operate under a common law or civil law system. And so under that kind of system, um, the person who can prove uh, first earliest commercial use uh, typically will have rights to that brand. Uh, it also makes it actually a bit easier for you to register your trademark once you want to register it if you've already started using it commercially prior to trademark registration. So I would use I would register a trademark as early as possible. Uh, sorry, not register. I'll, I'll use the brand name as early as possible, and there's no cost to doing that. Essentially, just do your uh, do some research to make sure that it's that the brand name is not already in use. Uh, will and uh, is uh, trademarkable. Uh, that's that's not a proper word, but yeah. Okay. Cool. All right, so let's wrap up here. And uh, before we go, just a quick reminder, um, just sending two links here in the chat. So one is Jason's training and his website. If you want to subscribe and take a look at his blogs, there's a lot of good information there. If you're new, recommend getting his training. And then indiasourcing.net, this is our website where you can find uh, manufacturers from India and also a lot of service providers. All of the factories are vetted to ensure that they are manufacturers and exporters. Of course, you need to work with a factory to manage your quality and, and uh, you know, product delivery, et cetera, but they are legitimate companies on the website. So it's sort of similar to Alibaba, you can say, like a B2C, a B2B sourcing platform. So we've got 
vetted suppliers, we've got vetted uh, service providers, and also a lot of education on how to source products from India, including a workshop and a mastermind. So check that out as well. Cool. So anything else before we sign off? Any comments from anybody? Any suggestions on how to do this better? Was this useful? Do you want us to continue this? Um, yeah, just unmute and let us know what you thought about the session. Nobody. <laughs> no one liked it. <laughs> They're like, get, get, get lost already. <laughs> okay, Ben saying it's a useful session. <laughs> it's a great session. Okay, good. So, yeah, we'll try to do this every month. Um, Farah is saying definitely useful. Please continue, Vanessa says. Okay, good. <laughs> um, cool. Any final words from you, Jason and Mark? Mm. Well, I think we, uh, uh, Mark Magler and myself, we all have various um, uh, platforms uh, that we can be found on. So uh, like uh, you probably joined us from either one of these, but if, so if you came through like my Facebook group or whatever, then just make sure that you join uh, Magler and Mark on India Sourcing uh, Network. Uh, do you want to put the links to your like Instagram, yeah. your Facebook group, etc.? Yeah, that's a good idea too. Yeah, let me just do that. So this is the India Sourcing Facebook group. And then we've also got a Telegram group. So in case you want to join that. And then Jason, yours is the Singapore, right? Um, What's it called? Put it My here. Silent Team. Uh, so Are you I'm, putting it there? Uh, mm, yeah, okay. I've got a Facebook group here. Uh, those, yeah, I've actually got another group, which is only for people who have gone to training. And the other one you can go to is my website. Uh, it's pretty easy. Okay. So yeah, uh, you can find us on these uh, various channels. And you can also post your questions um, in the Telegram group or in Jason's Facebook group as well. If you know these questions, if your questions were not addressed today, so we are pretty proactive in um, monitoring those groups and responding to questions there. Cool. Um, thank you so much, Ellen. Ellen says appreciate very much for Megla, Margaret, and Jason. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jason and Megla, for the session. Very useful and informative by learning from other questions too. Appreciate your time and sharing. Okay, great. It's good to know that this was helpful. So we will continue this then. <laughs> okay, cool. Thank you so much, everyone, right. for joining us. And we'll see you next month then. Okay. Okay, bye. See you all. Bye.